Hello, Sci-Fi fans. This is Tom O'Pennicott from Dollhouse and Battlestar Galactica, and you're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. Live long and prosper. Bad feeling about this. So say we all. This is going to get pretty interesting. Define interesting. The God of God, we're all going to die. Only try to realize the truth. You are listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, and now, from the end of the universe, bringing you the latest in science fiction movies and television shows, here are your hosts. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This is episode 97. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And hello, I am Miles P. McLaughlin. And we are coming to you live from the studio here at my house. Yes, the intergalactic headquarters of the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. Yeah, it's kind of anticlimactic when I say my house. No. You know, locked away in the basement in a little (laughs) grungy closet with Miles. But we're, you know... Yeah. We, we, we can still record a podcast. We can. We can. And mm-hmm. that's a good thing because we like sharing some of the things we're going to be sharing tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And we just got off a really good rewatch episode about The Matrix. With we Kevin. did. We did. It was, uh, you know, we, it, was, it was a lot of fun seeing the movie again. It was a lot of fun just talking about it and dissecting it. I mean, people go to book clubs and kind of dissect a book. Well, we dissect our favorite sci-fi we do it, we do it on a podcast exactly and it works just as good and mm-hmm. uh, wow if you aren't if you aren't watching it with us that's fine but you know we would love to have you join us and watch uh, Reloaded which is the next one and mm-hmm. even if you didn't like it tell us why you didn't like it maybe uh, a second viewing you may maybe change you might change your mind maybe you'll fall in love with Keanu Reeves all over again yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> I can't say it with a straight face <laughs> you can't mm-hmm. uh, our listener question we, we want to know what are some of your favorite moments that have happened on the past 100 episodes of the Sci-Fi Diner. And, you know, we, we say that we're at episode 97, but the mm-hmm. reality is with all our mini-episodes or listener feedback episodes, sure. we are way beyond this. Right. But, you know, I just count like the main episode as the one. This is the main show. So also we want to hear any thoughts on the format. And, Miles, I think we, we probably need to sit down and talk sometime about the format and how if we want to change anything at all sometime. But we'll have to. But any thoughts on that, we'd love to hear. Mm-hmm. And you can email them to us at Sci-Fi Diner Podcast at gmail.com or call that 1-800 number that one 888 and leave us know your thoughts. Okay. Either one. Well, let's, t- let's, let's dive into the menu tonight see what we're serving up. We have an interview with Tamal Pennicott from Mortal Kombat and Legacy, Dollhouse, and Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. We had a fun time interviewing this guy. He was a very good interview. Uh, what it lacks in, 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 in quantity, it, 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 it doesn't lack in quality. Yeah, and there's actually, we sat in on a bunch of other podcasters that I'll mention later on before we uh, put the episode up mm-hmm. and give them credit. So you'll hear some of their voices, I think, in that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually forget it's been that long who was sitting in that panel with us. But um, we announce our Tamil Pennicott giveaway. Mortal Kombat Legacy launches and the fans are watching. Sci-Fi confirms its summer schedule. Why Terra Nova fans are going to go supernova. <laughs> Q is everywhere, including Torchwood. 
Crow Casting News. Um, Doctor Who is back this Saturday. News on Planet of the Apes, Rise of the Apes, and 11 sci-fi stars who started out in the soap operas. Miles knows this because he's watched them all. Excuse me? Oh, okay, maybe not. The <laughs> twist uh, Miles is going to share about Brian Singer's failed attempt to bring Star Trek to the, to the uh, small screen and a little bit about Aaron Eisenberg, who played a Fringy. And I'm going to share, I think, my top five patio books in the sci-fi five and five. So and uh, we can get your top five patio books if you're listening to patio books anymore. You still listen to some patio books? Um, I haven't. I haven't lately. No. No, it is okay. Well, we can get your top five podcasts then, maybe sci-fi podcast sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, Miles, let's move into our trivia contest. Mm-hmm. We have a giveaway to oh. give away, and what are we giving away tonight? We are giving a signed uh, photo of uh, Tamal Pennington. I mean, come on. This guy's great. And it's a signed photo of him and Grace Park from Battlestar Galactica, right? Right. So if you go to a convention and if a fortune like Grace Park is there, I mean, this would be a nice this would be a nice picture for your collection. And if you're a Battlestar Galactica fan, whether you have her signature or not, this is going to be awesome. That. Right. And uh, we, have, we, we have a winner. Mm-hmm. But before we give the winner, let's give the question again. All right. We asked last time in the show Big Bang Theory, what two... Uh, Battlestar Galactica actors have uh, guest starred in it. And and the answer was what, Miles? The answer is uh, um, Michael Truco, who played um, Sam, and our uh, favorite uh, stogie, smoking, card-playing uh, Viper pilot, um, uh, Starbuck, played by uh, Katie Sackhoff. Yep, and the code word was so say we are. Mm-hmm. And we have a winner, and that winner is Miles. Uh, that winner is Matt Anderson. Yes, Matt Anderson. And if you haven't checked out, Matt Anderson, by the way, comes is is a podcaster from the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast. And if you haven't checked out their podcast, make sure you do so. That's a little bit of a plug. But congratulations, Matt, for winning that. And we'll come to you next week with another trivia giving away another awesome signed print, mm-hmm. I imagine. I imagine. Mm-hmm. At least that's a plan at this point. We're getting up in show 100, so we'll have to see how that all breaks down. All right. Well, before we go into our news tonight, let's do our first promo. And I thought uh, first promo night, it's appropriate that we're doing fringe casting with Wayne and Dan. Mm-hmm. I continue to contribute to their podcast, giving them the fringe quote of the week. And they do a good job of tearing down the episode and just talking about what's going on in the episode. And so if you like fringe, you really got to check them out. Mm-hmm. And we'll be talking about fringe in our listener feedback episode. But here is the promo for fringe casting with Wayne and Dan. Come close. I've got a quick question for you. Have you ever felt like you're out on the edge? Let's maybe call it the fringe. I happen to know someone who's fluent in gobbledygook. Well, I might be that guy. I'm Wayne Henderson. And I'm Dan, Metal Dan on Twitter. And together, we are the Fringe Casting with Wayne and Dan podcast, devoted to the TV show Fringe. Check out Fringe Casting at mediavoiceovers.com slash fringe. Also in iTunes the Zoom marketplace, etc. Then call us with your fringe thoughts and theories on our listener line at area code 206-984-1446. Thank you for your attention and have a nice day.
All right, we're back. This is the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, and we are talking about all sorts of news, and we're going to start with some TV news, and this isn't really TV news. This is more webisode news, I guess. Um, The first piece of news is Mortal Kombat Legacy was released last Sunday, the first episode. Last Sunday or Saturday, I believe, was the first episode, one of those days, Mm -hmm. and it has already had 600 million views. Six million views, yeah. Yeah, so that's Awesome! That that's huge, and yeah. that came courtesy of Jason, by the way. Which but that is huge, and I and I did get a, I got a chance to watch it. Tawel Pennick is in there, and you said Jerry Ryan, right? right. Mm-hmm. Uh, phenomenal, and there's other people in there that you will recognize um, that are just great, mm-hmm. great people to have in there. A great villain, and it's really nice. Some good effects. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but I look forward to it. Yep, YouTube it. You can YouTube it. It's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Check it out. Support more Combat Legacy. Absolute fans of it. And that's, that's a small piece of news. Also, Sci-Fi confirmed their summer schedule, and so I thought I'd share just a little bit for those of you that have interest in what Sci-Fi is doing. They firmed up their summer schedule, and it does not include Doctor Who, which we'll be talking about later on because it's not on Sci-Fi. But on Monday, July 11th, three of the shows that will kind of blow in all at once. Eureka is coming in, 10 episodes, completing season four. So it's kind of a continuation of season four. Eureka comes in. Warehouse 13 is season three, consisting of 13 episodes. So that comes back. You watch You watch Warehouse 13. Oh, I love Warehouse yeah, 13. So that's coming back on July 7th. You know, that is surely weekend again. Oh. Remember? Yeah, well, yeah. that's Monday. So it's a Monday after surely mm-hmm. that comes in. And then also a new series, and I kind of want to check this out. It's Alphas. Yeah, we talked about that a few months yeah, ago. Yeah, did you see the, they have a trailer they've been playing in sci-fi a little bit? I haven't seen a trailer yet, so that's because you skipped through the trail, uh, skipped through the commercials right now. But no, right. <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, it looks good. The following Friday, July fifteenth, we'll see season two premiere of Haven, a show I do not watch, but some of you might. And meanwhile, this is kind of unrelated. The network announced that its version of Being Human, which wrapped up last week, is the network's highest rated new winter scripted series since Battlestar Galactica in two thousand five. The season one finale delivered one point six million total viewers, with a one point million adults aged. 25 to 54, and about a million among adults 18 to 49. Being Human was recently renewed by Sci-Fi for a second season. So good news from the uh, Being Human front. Mm-hmm. It did real well for him. And again, wasn't that it was uh, poorly done. I enjoyed it. It was just a bit dark. Yeah, I had I had to give it a break. <laughs> I was coming off of Charlie Jade, and so I just couldn't quite stomach getting into another dark show. I really, the, truth be told, I didn't have time for another new show. Sure. That's where it comes. Well, Miles, why don't you tell us a little bit about Terra Nova? Well, we talked about Terra Nova a couple months ago, and this show definitely intrigues me. But unfortunately, we might have to wait a little longer. Uh, Fox executives have been saying that Steven Spielberg's new sci-fi series for Fox, Terra Nova, needs more time to complete special effects before being shown. But a new report suggests there are more serious reasons for the show's continuing to delay. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the issues with the show, which follows a group of colonists back in time to restart human civilization during the age of dinosaurs, go much deeper than making the visuals look as good as possible. In fact, the main problem is apparently not just that the effects need more time, but that not enough uh, footage was even uh, shot for the show's two-hour premiere episode. The complications reportedly uh, reportedly stem from the way the program was developed and the constant turnover personnel involved. More than a dozen executive producers have been in and out of the project along with a number of writers. And all this was going on while Fox was dithering over whether the premiere should be one or two hours long, with the network finally deciding the last minute to make it two hours. 
Once filming got underway in Australia, another problem hit the producers, hit the production. Rain. Director Alex Graves said at, at, at WonderCon last month, it never stopped. There were there were days where we would have to go, we would have to not go to location. A combination of weather problems, script length issues, and what Fox spokesperson called the difficulty of timing sequences led to the production coming back from the shoot with less footage than needed for a two-hour programming. Some sources blame Graves, while others, including Fox, put the fault on current executive producer Brandon Braga and showrunner uh, Renee Ecavera. Um, and I'll just say it, but both of these have worked in Star Trek. Right, uh, right. Mm-hmm. A Fox spokesman name. said, uh, Brandon misjud- misjudged at the script stage, and Alex and his script supervisor misjudged it as being sh- as it was being shot. But an executive at another studio sniped, maybe the problem is that there are so many cooks in the kitchen, all the producers on the, on the project along with the network, and the studio. So where do things stand? The show had been originally slated to premiere last summer, was delayed to this May, and now has been delayed again to this fall. It's got a skyrocketing budget with the pilot alone costing somewhere between ten million and twenty million, which that's like a movie. That's like a big, big that's like a small budget movie. It is, yeah, exactly. I mean for T V. Um and this would make it the most expensive pilot in history. There are elaborate wow. visual effects uh, to complete and a premiere episode that just doesn't have enough story to fill a two-hour time slot. And once the pilot is finally slapped together from what they, they got to work with, uh, they, they have to do it again every week. Does this whole thing sound ominous? Is there any chance the turnover will premiere and actually be worth looking at? The only way they're going to save this show, Miles, mm-hmm. is if the premiere hits and it draws in millions of viewers millions of viewers right they have to because it's just it's not going to be worth it for them it's they, they have one ch- one chance at making this work they need to fire the management that's all i'm saying when you're reading that i kept saying got to fire the management i mean fox saying oh one to two hours oh let's do a two-hour premiere and then them not having enough footage i agree there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen there's probably plenty of blame to go around mm-hmm. but wow they should have thought this through just a bit more yeah, it's a, a lack of prepared they're, they're lack of preparation. It, it surprises me with Spielberg behind it. Now, granted, he's just the name behind it, but mm-hmm. still, yeah. For 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 this is a, an ambitious project. You, you need to have you need to have your act together, and, and it's obviously they, they don't. Wow, twenty million though, Miles. That's that's a, that's a heck heck right. of a thing. They can't do that every week. No, they don't. I mean, I, would, I mean, they could use. I mean, whatever the existing. I mean, there'll be set pieces and and stuff like that. But um, man, I, I hope they get the uh, get the show up. I mean, it looks really looks interesting. Uh, yeah, the, the uh, little trailer they threw out there is pretty awesome. Yeah, so uh, I don't know. Oh, so what do you think, uh, listeners? Do you think that Terra Nova is going to make it? Mm. Do you think we'll ever see the pilot? Do you think that once the pilot hits, that there'll be actually be a series following it? Yeah. Big questions. Mm-hmm. Big questions, and we want to hear your thoughts. Stunning, some stunning Torchwood news. I'm a fan of Torchwood, and uh, I think the Torchwood, and I believe the Torchwood is coming out this summer. I could be wrong. But they just cast Star Trek's Q was cast in Miracle Day. So Q, Q and John Delancey, we're excited about that. Um, what we know about the upcoming Torchwood Miracle Day is that we can fit into a few sentences. Part of it takes place in the United States. Everyone on Earth stops dying. It's going to be awesome. And now we know there's a new member of the cast. Joining Bill Pullman, uh, Mickey Pfeiffer, uh, uh, and the surviving members of Torchwood is the fabulous John Delancey. 
Tortured writer Jane Espenson, who, of course, is a Firefly alumni, and Buffy, I think. I just, as Scott Minnick got permission to tell about the Torchwood guest star I was tweeting about. Two great sci-fi fandoms collide. He's delicious. He's delightful. He's lovely. He's our friend Q from Star Trek. Next Generation, John Delancey is part of the Torchwood family. Great news for fans of Delancey, who snarked his way into our lives as Q in Star Trek, Next Generation, not to mention spin-offs Deep Space Nine and Voyager. He's made appearances in such shows as Star get SG-1, Charmed, among others, but he's moving target and never seems to stay in one place, including Next Generation, for very long. Currently, there's no word on what role he's playing. But as Espenson tweeted, he's not playing Q. Let's be clear. <laughs> yeah, no surprise there that they wouldn't put him as Q, but fascinating character. Oh, John Delancey is a great actor. Um, I mean, he's probably no more as a character actor um, but uh, I mean, he's 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 classically trained. Um, I had a chance to see him at a convention over 15 years ago. He's very funny, and we're looking forward to seeing him this year at, at a short leave. I hope this doesn't pull him out of short leave. Yeah, I mean, because uh, actors can you know they drop off the short leave roster every once in a while. Sure. So. so we'll see. But anyways, either way, it'll be good to see him in Torchwood. Mm-hmm. I know that you have not watched Torchwood, but mm-hmm. this might give you a reason, Miles, to watch it. It might. Might maybe mm-hmm. John Delancey's in Torchwood. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go into some movie news here, and then we're going to jump back to some TV news because I kind of structured this weird. Yeah, I I, uh, I brought this up in last week's dessert menu, but I want to really, you know, uh, I want to see what you listeners are are, are thinking about this. Uh, so we talked not too long ago about a Crow remake, and when I say remake, it's a remake of the first film. There had been three other films after that, and there was even a brief TV series. And we which, shall not mention those. No. Uh, <laughs> those which will not be named. Those which we do not speak of. Yes. Yes. Um, but uh, so, so this is a story. Uh, Heat Vision is reporting that Bradley Cooper's um, upcoming Hangover Part 2 is, is in early negotiations to Relativity Media's The Crow. Based on a comic created by James O'Barr, the reboot will focus on the character of Eric Draven, um, played in a 94 film by Brandon Lee. Uh, Juan Carlos uh, Fresnadolo was direct from a script he wrote with uh, Nick Crave. Uh, Nick Cave. The, the trade says that uh, Cooper met the director in Spain direct recently, where the two hit it off and uh, shared a vision for the character in the film. Um, and uh, Bradley Cooper, he's, he's been an up-and-comer. I mean, I think he played Face in the new uh, A-Team. Uh, he was in that new movie, with, new movie with Robert De Niro, basically taking those smart pills, I forget the name of it. Um Oh, Limitless? Yeah. Limitless, but, uh, which so, I haven't... I saw in the trailer and said, oh, they gave everything away. I didn't see the movie. I mm-hmm. think that was out in out in theaters and disappeared again. Yeah. Um, but he, 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 we're seeing this guy in a lot of stuff now. So... Um, so can he pull off the crow? Honest, this is this is where I'm coming from. I, I, I personally think this is, this is a movie that, you know, doesn't need to be made. I think the 94 film was quite good enough and um obviously the, the original film that there's a there's mystery and controversy surrounding it um uh sadly brandon lee lost his life uh, making the movie with in, in an accident with a um, with a gun um i heard there was other problems on the set also um and i, I think the first one the, well the 94 version of the crow is a great film and i don't think it needs to be touched that's my opinion uh, I'm kind of with you there, but you know, you never know. I've been surprised by reboots. Mm-hmm. I mean, Batman surprised me. I, I was pleasantly surprised by it. Granted, mm-hmm. they 
wasn't much to up the earlier ones. It was right. earlier, and you're really a movie that's been hailed as a classic. It's I, I don't know. I, I don't put Batman and the Crow in the same. No, uh, absolutely, absolutely not. I mean, I mean, something like a superhero genre that that story could be retold on and on again. I, I, I mean, that's that's uh, you know, and, and even some sci-fi genres can. But I mean, the Crow, I, I think. And the fact that you know the the lead lost his life in making that movie. I yeah, just there's think, something about you're almost disrespecting the movie by remaking it. That's that's how I feel. Spitting on the grave of Brandon Liu. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you think, listeners? I mean, yeah, should this movie be made or should uh, should it not be made? And we just you know we still have the uh, yeah the original. Well, we do have so we do have a few comments, and I know Matt Mather commented quite profusely on Facebook. Yeah, we might share his thoughts in the listener. He feedback. definitely had an opinion. Yeah, he did. Uh, by the way, filming's targeted to start later this year. Mm-hmm. So. Sign a petition now if you don't want it made. <laughs> Doctor Who is coming back and is coming back this Saturday, and I am excited, and he is coming to America. Hmm. So Doctor Who is being shot in America, so we're quite excited about that. There are a bunch of other things that are happening in sci-fi this week, but that was kind of a significance, and I'm going to embed the trailer for this um, show, and hopefully I'll this episode out before. But Easter weekend, they're premiering this, so I'm excited about it. Mm-hmm. It should be an awesome, awesome episode um miles why don't you take us into our next story and this is rise of the planet of the apes okay we brought this story uh a couple months ago we just there there there, just a picture at one time just seeing the apes run wild in a a, um crowded street Uh, but we got a little more news and there's actually now a trailer uh so the the story is. I'll embed the trailer. And the story is a single act of both compassion and arrogance leads to a war unlike any other, and the rise of the Planet of the Apes. The Oscar-winning visual effects team that brought the life to the worlds of Avatar and Lord of the Rings is breaking new ground, creating a CGI ape that delivers a dramatic performance of unprecedented motion and intelligence in epic battles, in which uh, rest the upended destinies of man and primate. Um, and. Um, is that Weta? Weta is, is that the production company, I think. By the way, names in there, Andy Serkis, of course, played Gollum. John Lithgow, uh, James Franco, mm-hmm. other names that stick out there? Um, those are the ones that, are, that, that really stick yeah. out to me, yeah. yeah. So I, I actually... Uh, oh, August 5th is when that movie is coming out, by the way. So I, I seen the trailer looks very impressive. Um, I, I actually sent a clip to uh, Dayton Ward, who's a huge aficionado of uh, the Planet of the Apes uh, series. I don't know what, he's, what his thought of the uh, 2002 uh, movie was, but I know he liked the, the originals. And so, but yeah, he, there's a lot that. of there's not a lot of love. There's not a lot of love for the Mark, Mark Wahlberg, yeah, the Marky uh, Mark one, but, but uh, which I, I guess this is. I don't know if this movie is going to um, is a separate thing from the. Uh, Second one, because in the second one, I, 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 have you seen the before? The second plan. I mean, I'm sorry, the first plan, the the, the Mark Wahlberg version. I have. You have numerous okay. times. So, you, I mean, at the end of the film, his ship crashes in Washington D.C., and all these cop cars come in, and they're apes dressed up as cops. And so, right. I was wondering, is this is this movie like a prequel to, to this? That? Is, I think this is hailed as a prequel. Okay, I think so. Okay, so it's still going to kind of be in that same time, you know. Yeah. So hey, we'll see. Mm-hmm. But uh, are you going to go see it, Miles? I think so. I I, um, I, I, I like the, the Mark Wahlberg version. It wasn't the best, but it was it wasn't bad. 
Um, and the, the trailer for this one looks pretty good too. You're almost dealing with a franchise here when you deal with Planet of the Apes. Yeah, you are. So it's hard. It's easy to mess up and hard to get right sometimes. But mm-hmm. well, let's move into eleven sci-fi stars who got their start in soap operas. So soap, soap operas ratings have made the news. They've dropped for the last fifteen years, and they've decided to pull the plug into the long ones. And uh, we don't really care, but it has been a proving ground for some of our sci-fi actors. Right. And I thought what we do is we as we go down through here is just kind of. Do we do every other one? Sure, that's fine. And uh, why don't why don't you start with Sarah, and I'll take the next one and go down through. Well, uh, very popular from the Buffy series of Sarah Michelle Gellar. Uh, she started in All My Children. Uh, Gellar played a Kendall Hart, a serious uh, bitcha. Uh, she tried to seduce her, her birth mother's husband. When the uh, seduction failed, she accused him of rape. And when uh, she wasn't wreaking havoc on the life of the woman who gave her up for adoption, she was amusing herself by locking her young half-sister in a crypt. Lucky for us, she ultimately uh, turned in, t- t- in her sneer for a vampire steak. Yep. And Mark Hamill was the next one. The Force was not with this young Kent Murray on General Hospital. After his father dies, he and his sister are forced to live with their aunt. All we could dig up about Kent. However, we did manage to dig up a photo of Hamill from around that time. So it's not even the photo. We'll embed this, but it's not the photo from the actual show. Uh, okay. And next is uh, Nathan Fillion, uh, defender of the memory of Firefly. Fillion known for the captain of the Serenity, an awesome job, and it's probably a better job than his college student on One Life to Live, who was seduced and dumped by his mother's arch emesis uh, over 25 years of senior. And later thrown, yeah, Cougar, later thrown over by his girlfriend, uh, for his brother. Um, so, yeah, he has definitely uh, um, done very well since. Uh, yeah. um, I think this guy has too, Darth Vader himself. Yeah. <laughs> James Earl Jones on soaps. He played Dr. Terry Turner, and as the world turns with a sonorous voice, we implicitly trust his authority. The way he wields the lightsaber as Darth Vader, we're pretty sure he's awesome at amputations. We also have early photos of Jones, who was the first African American to have a continuous role in soap operas. So that's kind of significant. Mm-hmm. Ooh, Trekkie. Um, yes, uh, Kate Mulgrew, uh, Captain uh, Janeway herself. Uh, before she was uh, Captain Catherine Janeway on a Star Trek Voyager. Heck, before she was Mrs. Columbo. K- Kate Mulgrew was a reporter. Mary Ryan on Ryan's Hope. An interesting sci-fi twist. She appeared years later as the late Mary Ryan in spirit form. Ooh, very right, cool. Uh, Christopher Reeve. I was going to say Keanu Reeves. Christopher Reeve, best known as Superman, the Kryptonian who's allergic to kryptonite, spent 1974 to 1976 on Love of Life, where he played Ben Harper, who managed to keep not one but two wives in a small town. Ultimately, he was blackmailed and had a falling out with both his wives, led to a horrific prison term. That sounds like a soap opera. It does indeed. Uh, another Star Trek alumni, Michelle Forbes. Uh, uh, she has freely played strong female characters. Ensign Rolaird on Star Trek Next Generation was tough. Admiral Kane of Ballister Galactic was even tougher. But neither of them were, were former prostitutes who slept with their identical twin sister's boyfriend who deliberately planted false memories into an amnesiac. Worse than that, the character, uh, Sonia Wells' uh, uh, career on Guiding Light also tried to bury her enemy alive twice. Yep. Ooh, you should have this one. But uh, hmm. why don't you take this one, since it's also Star Trek? Another Star Trek alumnus, uh, um, uh, Leonard Nimoy. Uh, it should be noted that Nimoy was one of the founding members of the long-running General Hospital, 
Uh, in fact, uh, soon to be ABC's only soap opera, but the man who is Spock had a uh, small role as a drug dealer. There you go. <laughs> After last week's Fringe episode, it's no wonder. Um, Richard Dean Anderson, the future Jack O'Neill, played by Dr. Jeff Weber, played Dr. Jeff Weber on General Hospital and his ability to wrap his tongue around phrases like broad-spectrum antibiotics probably helped later on the set of Stargate SG-1, except that Jack was never one for scientific jargon. That was Samantha Carter's job. Hmm. And... Uh Lord of the Ring fans, uh, you m- might not believe this, but uh, Viggo Mortensen. That's not surprising. Yep. Uh, in Search of Tomorrow, Mortensen played uh, Bragg, an information broker who runs afoul of a South American dictator and spends much of his time on the soap in a hospital bed recovered from gunshot wounds. We, we would kill to find a clip of the 27-year-old Mortensen. We'll have to be content with a picture of him as Aragon. Yeah, yeah, which I'm quite content with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tamblyn was almost 12 when she took the role. This is Amber Tamblyn. was almost 12 when she took the role of Emily Bowen. Uh, in General Hospital, so equally the young character couldn't have gotten into too much trouble, right? Not in a soap opera land. Addicted to drugs early on, she gets clean only to be drugged up and set up for murder of a one-night stand. Joan, who did God's bidding on Joan of Arcadia, had it easy. Hmm. And a shout-out to those stars whose clips and images haven't yet made their way to the Internet. Billy Dee Williams, Another World in 64. John Jonathan Frakes, uh, The Doctors in 77 to 78. Mary McDonald, As the World Turns in 1980, Michael Dorn, Days of Our Lives, 86 to 87, and Gina Torres, One Life to Live. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of other people as well worth mentioning. Well, Miles, let's move into our twist. Well, okay, this week in Star Trek, uh, a couple things uh, uh, really piqued my interest. Um, we talked about a possible Star Trek TV series on a small screen. There were some articles floating around the internet about that. Well, here's one. Uh, uh, Brian Singer, who had uh, produced um, the first uh, X, the first two X-Men movies and the, the latest, latest Superman movie. Uh, so what was Brian Singer's failed TV uh, pitch? Uh, this was his idea. Um, so just a few days ago, we told you that CBS Paramount had rejected uh, Star Trek TV pitches from William Shatner and Jonathan Frakes, as well as from Brian Singer before J.J. Abrams successfully brought the franchise back with a 2009 Star Trek. Now, there are some cool details on Singer's failed uh, Star Trek TV pilot proposal. This info comes from someone going by the name of Solomon Short, who wrote to uh, Herc over at Ain't It Cool News after they broke. However, to be aware that the guy uh, admitted he didn't read the script, though he held the precious thing in his hands and he insisted he heard the details from a friend. But what he reported about the script is, qu- is quite, yes, we'll say, fascinating. Many years ago, I sat in a friend's office and held the script for the proposed Trek series pilot, but did not have time to read it. If memory serves me correctly, this is a what I recall getting out of my friend about the series. Uh, um, the Singer Universe was written before the Abrams reboot and follows the original Trek timeline. We are somewhere just beyond the 30th century. The Klingons are less warrior-like and, and more political. The Romulans and Vulcans completed uh, reunification are busy with uh, that. Obviously, it has taken account of the Rom- Romulus' destruction. And the Federation has expanded through a huge portion of the galaxy. So far, in fact, transmissions from the frontier to Starfleet headquarters takes years at subsequent base frequencies. Ships sent to these distant areas of the galaxy are near autonomous, expanding the Federation while exploring new worlds and civilizations unknown to the Trek universe. Anyway, this parallels Voyager exploring the Delta Quadrant and Deep Space Nine's wormhole access to the uh, Gamma Quadrant. Except our hero ship is not trying to go home, yet the crew is literally on their own to deal with whatever goes thrown in their way, while still making headway on their mission of exploration expansion. I cannot comment on the principal characters of the story itself as I did not read the script, nor do I recall where in the galaxy this, this takes place. 
i.e. what quadrant. As I said, a few years have passed, and I may be off a couple details. Hope This is of interest, Solomon Short. So taking this all with a grain of salt, what do you think? Would you like to see Brian Singer's take on a Star Trek universe? Would you? I don't know if I like the idea of going to the 30th century. That just seems so far in the future. Um, I tell you what, it frees up. You know they can really alter the Trek universe as far as the way it looks. Well, the question would it? This is a question Phoenix had when they went to the future. How far can you go and still have it look like Trek? Yeah, I mean, and it just the you know maybe the technology just be so advanced that it would you know I don't know. Um, so would I check it out if it, if it ever came on TV? Well, of course I would, but you know. It's Trek. You'd watch every episode, Miles. Yeah, I, I, guilty as charged. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. It sounds a little bit Voyager-like to me. It does, and maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe it sounds too familiar. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And you had one other piece of news here. Yeah, I want to bring your, your attention to uh, our friend uh, Chris Wood and, and his wife Charity. They uh, recently uh, on their podcast. Uh, well, they run the Subspace Comms Communication uh, website, but they also have a podcast uh, where they interview. Uh, you know, past Star Trek actors, a life after Trek, uh, and they recently interviewed Aaron uh, Eisenberg. He played uh, Nog, uh, who's a Ferengi, um, on Deep Space Nine. And uh, in the article, we're pleased to announce the eighth episode of our Life After Trek podcast, featuring Aaron Eisenberg. As you all know, Aaron played Nog, the younger of the youngest of the Ferengi family on Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. Even though he he wasn't a regular, uh, Aaron corrected us about the, during the podcast. Nog was such a presence that he enhanced the entire feel for the series. Being huge Deep Space Nine fans, we are totally stoked to spend time talking to Aaron about his current projects and his life after Trek. During the podcast, he talked about his time on Deep Space Nine, his videography business, his career life strategies, and he even filled us in as inspiration for his role in uh, It's Only a Paper Moon, uh, the episode we personally find ourselves uh, returning to over and over again. It was a true pleasure to talk with Aaron. Um, and, and man, he, he's got it together. He's even inspired us to do a little more planning with our own future. And we mean beyond what which uh, Trek episodes to watch tonight. This is a fantastic talk, and we're sure you're going to enjoy it. Now, uh, hit the download button. Uh, what are you waiting for? So uh, so check out um, Life After Trek podcast. And we'll, we'll put a download link to, mm-hmm. to that so you can hear that yourself. Mm-hmm. But kind of cool. Yeah. Kind of cool. Uh, very cool. Thank you for sharing those miles. And uh, let's move into our final promo for tonight. And this promo in honor of Dan, who I got uh, something wrong for him in the Matrix uh, uh, Trilogy podcast that we did, is... Uh, for his podcast called the Midnight Movie Club Podcast, and that's with uh, Lee and Dan, and they kind of do 80s and 90s movies, and so worth checking out. They did the Matrix one as well, and some Stargate and some other ones, mm-hmm. so here's the promo. Hello, I'm Dan and this is Lee. Hello. And together we are Lee and Dan's Midnight Movie Club. You see, every week we come together and we review classic popcorn movies of the 80s and the 90s. <laughs> For example, so far we've reviewed Teen Wolf. Which is great. Teen Wolf 2. Which was awful. The Last Starfighter. Which was great. Cannonball Run. Awful. Army of Darkness. Awesome. <laughs> Police Academy. Mission to Moscow. Not so awesome. Worst film in the history of mankind. And Pee-wee's Big Adventure. The second worst film in the history of mankind. So if you want to hear more of our highly intelligent, uh, incisive film critique, come over to midmoclub.com, that's M-I-D-M-O club.com, and check out our podcast. Or you could just type Midnight Movie Club into iTunes, if you have iTunes. Yes. If you don't have it, it'll be harder. That's right. So we'll hope we'll uh, you'll listen to us soon. Uh, to be fair, though, I quite like Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Well, you're an idiot. 
Welcome back to the Sci-Fi Donner Podcast. We have an awesome interview that we're bringing tonight. Right. I'm looking forward to hearing it again. Yeah, it is. It's going to be good. And some editing going on here because I know that I know that Wayne Hall, for example, from Sci-Fi Post was in on the... Uh, was in on the podcast. You'll hear his voice on it. You'll hear Miles and I on it. I don't know if there's anyone else in this one because I think only two of us interviewed him. But what a phenomenal uh, interview. He talks about Mortal Kombat Legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, this interview, again, was recorded about two months ago, and we just haven't had time to bring it to you before now. But uh, you'll hear him talk about Dollhouse. You'll hear him talk about Battlestar Galactica. It all shows that we've loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So exciting stuff. Yeah, it was a great interview. Uh, he's a great guy. If you ever at a convention and he's there, you know, make a point to say hi. And uh, he's a tall man, tall. tall man. He's a big guy. Yeah, he is very, very, very tall. Mm-hmm. Well, without further ado, here is Pamela Pennicut from the Farpoint Convention. Hey, Sonia. Stryker, how are you feeling? I'm okay. Where am I? In the ICU. You've been out nearly a week. Yeah, I was pretty worried about you. Did we get Kano? Ladies and gentlemen, this morning we are speaking with uh, Tamil Pennicut at Farpoint. And if we just jump right in, um, Battlestar Galactica, I heard your character originally wasn't going to be in the show after the miniseries. However, your character played a pivotal role in a major storyline. I've also uh, heard uh, Ronald D. Moore called Heel of the Conscience of the show. Can you tell us what transpired that made your character made it survive the miniseries and make it for the TV show? Um, I mean, that might be a question for the uh, executive producers and stuff. I mean, you know, obviously as an actor on a television series, especially early on and with such a large cast, you're not really privy to executive decisions like that mm-hmm. ultimately I think your job even if you're a small supporting character like I was is just to you know do the best work you can when I got this role this is one of the few roles in my 10 years of being a professional that I um, I instantly connected to you know I, re- I remember reading the sides uh, you know the sides for the for the audition mm-hmm. and uh, and just being like I know this guy I can do this I'm very excited about it and the audition sides were um they were the scene uh, on the planet where I basically give up my seat to Guy's Baltar. And I say, listen, you know, mankind's about to end here. Mm-hmm. Give up my seat. I have that great scene with uh, with Sharon. And uh, for me, personally, I mean, you know, my character and, and my role in that show was going to be done after the miniseries. I mean, the planet's going to blow up. It's, you know, nuclear holocaust. Life is over. Yeah. Life is over. He, he was there. And I, I was okay with that. I, I just, I had the privilege to work with Edward James almost made this incredible connection to Grace Park who I hadn't met before before this miniseries and uh, and you know the rest of the cast and it was such a warm environment and it was like doing a big feature because we shot it over three months so I would come in I was originally I think slated for like four days or something Michael Reimer kept on writing me into other scenes and uh, he, he being the, uh, uh, the brilliant key director that we had and uh, that was just amazing. So I keep on going in and doing more stuff, and it bonded us more as a uh, as a cast, and especially the pilots. So for me, the, the, that was done. I moved on to uh, uh, another series, a Canadian series, and I, you know, I didn't think I'd be coming back for Battlestar Galactica. I got some nice compliments at the end from producers. Edward James almost told me that you know the producers really like my work, and they thought about bringing me back. But you know, you take everything with a grain of salt in this business you know nothing's done until it's done <laughs> and uh but you know uh, you know six months later whenever it was when i got the call from ronald moore saying um 
you know, that he, uh, he, he had an idea for a storyline, a separate storyline going on the planet where Kilo's still alive and trying to survive. I mean, I was, I was, I was ecstatic. I was over the moon. Well, as a viewer, that was a very that scene did stand out where your character gives your seat to Baltar. Yeah, and I, and I saw him the show. Yeah, on the show, it's like he's back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was so well written. You know, it was a great scene, a hero scene. You know, I mean, you get a sense of Hilo, who Hilo is from that that moment there, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, uh, I think the writers stayed true to him somewhat throughout the the course of the show. You, you could always go back, and you know, this guy was a very very. Uh, Strong as in, in his uh, convictions, and uh, he knew what he wanted and what he stood for. Good deal. Yeah, and I, I love how BSG really didn't tell you what to think. They kind of presented the issues, yeah, and then let you, as the audience member, make the decision. And he presented all sides. Absolutely, great point. I mean, that, you know, that's that's the main point that anybody makes about this brilliant show. It's uh, it always just asks you to examine both sides. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, it's it's it was fascinating. It's brilliant the way Ron Moore did that, and he was brave at the time. I mean, you know, the politi- politically and socially in the world, you look at the atmosphere we were living in when BSG started and started touching on issues like insurgency, suicide bombers, very, very touchy issues at the time where all the censorship, censorship was happening and everything. And they always just, you know, they, 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 they forced you to look at both sides of the, uh, the issues. And uh, I'm just I'm, I'm so blessed to have uh, worked on a project like this, you know? Really, really. I think, I think even the executive producers and the writers... It seems like Eddie always knew. He's like, this show has so much potential. And from the beginning, he was like, this is amazing, and we're going to go far with this. You don't understand how important this is. And I think even the writers, like Ron, Ron Moore and David Icke, were even, I mean, they, you know, they had a blueprint of where they were going to go, but you never know where the show is going to go, regardless of how much you plan things out, because it's such a collaborative process between writers, actors, the entire crew. You know, every single person on that show uh, made that show uh what it became because uh, uh, you, you know like you write a scene a certain way but the way the actors interpret it sometimes take you in a completely different direction and uh, the writers always came to us and said that especially if you do your extra work I, to be honest with you I think that's part of the reason that I, I, I stayed on the show whenever I had an opportunity with Grace Park because you know there's such a big cast oftentimes our scenes were quite small mm-hmm. so we'd just do backstory you'd be like let's find more to this story what is actually going on in this scene and we do it, and the writers would have to write for it. They'd be like, you know, we wrote it at this level, and you gave us three more. Like, what's going on there? I have to write for that now. Wow, so even you, you brought the writers to their A-game. Exactly. And, um, and uh, forced them to write for me more in some ways. And that was a huge learning lesson as an actor. And that's just something, you know, I, I constantly tell, you know, you know, young actors starting out. Like, do your work. Yeah. Do your work. When you don't, they're not going to write for you. When you do it, they're going to write for you. There's more opportunity. As a viewer, you could tell the actors were invested in the show. Exactly. And I think everyone, you know, as the seasons went on and everyone realized, uh, you know, how special the show and how important it was, mm-hmm. um, you know, everyone got more and more invested. Like, you know, even our crew. And and so much of it, not only was the incredible talent at all levels, but I, I can never thank uh, our leads enough. Edward James almost and Mary McDonald were just such incredible mentors. Being in the business so long having gone through everything, having such long careers themselves, both being Academy Award nominees, like just incredible actors, but they were so passionate about the show and they set such a, uh, uh, such a realistic and, and uh, proper precedent. They, they, they were such giving leads and yet they worked their asses off and they were always there and they kept it light. Mm-hmm. They got serious when they had to be, but they, you know, you had to follow suit, man. 
They were just, they were amazing, man. So they set the tone in a way? Oh, 100%. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, Dollhouse. You, know, you play a character, Paul Ballard, that's like the conscious of the show in a sense, in, in some ways. Yeah. And uh, and you also, uh, rumor has it, you do a lot of your own stunts. What, do you, what does he call it? Is it Muay Thai? Yeah, Muay Thai. I, how does that play into your roles of acting in Battlestar and Dollhouse? Well, uh, you know, I whenever I had the opportunity I, I've been a passionate uh, uh, fan of martial arts and, and you know I, I, and I study them uh, and I have for many many years um, unfortunately because of episodic you don't get to train as diligently as I, I would like and it's been a long time since I've been able to really really focus on it and train at it but whenever I've had the opportunity to bring it to uh, any of the shows I've worked on I've taken that opportunity for instance in the boxing scene um, in uh, Battlestar Galactica uh, you know there was an opportunity there and uh, to be honest with you, I was, I was written in a small scene, and I think I was like holding hand pads for someone, and I wasn't actually in the ring. I kicked and screamed and whined so much <laughs> about that, because they all knew that I trained regularly, and I went straight to the house, I went straight to David Icke and Ron Moore, and I was like, you guys have to put me in here. If I get beat up, fine, but put me in a scene. I want to be boxing in the ring. This is my thing. Don't you dare not do it. Like, I made such a big deal. So they mentioned Rokas Wicked Scene to Jamie. And, uh, you know, it's good. I think originally the scene ended with Jamie kicking my ass, and I was like, really? Come on. <laughs> and they're like, okay, well, change it around. And anyway, it was great. Jamie, you know, Jamie's so athletic. The guy, you should have seen how quickly he learned. Like, he hadn't really done any boxing before. He'd done a quick scene with uh, uh, Eddie yeah, in the first season, which was great. Mm-hmm. But that's all he'd really done. But he's a really athletic guy, so he picked up right away. They brought in, at first, uh, uh, one of my best friends and I, Alex Ponovic, and I were working a fight scene out with him. And then they brought on this fight coordinator who got really specific about combinations and how we were going to do the fight scene. And Jamie was great in that, man. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Dollhouse, same thing. Pilot episode. Uh, Joss Whedon has this great idea. Or not pilot episode. First first episode of first season. He's got, he wrote in the scene where um, uh, I was going to box. And uh, I just went to Joss right away, and I'm like, look, I've been doing this thing, this martial art Muay Thai for a number of years. And uh, I'm like, you know, it's, it's, it's great. Jumping knees, elbows, it's a beautiful martial art. And he's like, Muay Thai? He's like, can I get some Pad Thai with that? I'm like, <laughs> he's like, he had no idea what I was talking about, right? And I'm like, uh, Joss, trust me, just please, like, this is right Muay Thai. I'll do the rest. Let me work with the fight coordinators. And we did, and we did this scene. And I went in there, and they had this great uh, fight coordinator. But he was more uh, karate-based, which is an amazing martial art in itself, but very different in the way that it didn't have uh, the same knees and elbows and things like that. So we quickly worked, uh, you know, a fight scene, and, uh, you know, got that great fight scene in the first episode of Dollhouse where I'm doing jumping knees, and, you know, I helped choreograph that and put in all the moves that I wanted to, and they had me, you know, a 250-pound Maori to, uh, or Samoan, I should say, uh, my friend Tenaway Reed. Who's uh, an amazing stuntman? He's worked with the best. He, he doubles the rock often. Oh, okay. He's, yeah. Anyway, so he was the guy who gets beat up in the scene. Guy's <laughs> a monster. But uh, yeah, it was great. Awesome. So yeah, whenever I can do my stunts, I do them. If it's something stupid where there's obviously a big chance of me hurting myself, I'll take a step back. But uh, oftentimes, uh, I don't let the stunt guys do my stuff. No. And I'm curious to find out what was it that attracted you to Battlestar Galactica? Uh, what attracted me to it? Yes. Uh, well, I mean. Uh, I think this you know as soon as I read the sides I, you have to understand even when I booked the gig I hadn't read the script mm-hmm. I only read the sides for it um, I remember watching it when I was a kid I was very 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 young though. I barely remember the, the original series but when I read the uh, the sides <coughs> for um, for the scenes I was going to audition for and there was, there was you know the main scene between uh, Sharon and I down on the planet where I, I gave up my seat 
to guys of all time. And I just connected to it right away. And, that, you know, I think a lot of actors will tell you that rarely happens, where you feel an instant connection. You just say, I know this guy. I know this scene. And you can't wait to get in the room and do the audition. And that was the situation with me. I, I read it, and I was really, really excited about it. So uh, I even remember, you know, being in the audition room and uh, watching Michael Reimer go by. I didn't know who he was, but I just assumed when I saw him walk by in the casting room that he was the director. And we had a moment. I remember he walked by and he kind of looked at me and I looked at him and we just had this second where we just kind of connected and I was like, all right, this is all falling into place. And uh, as soon as I got in the room, I, you know, I just, I had a great audition. I, I think I could say that. And, you know, he worked with me a little bit and uh, it was great. And I, it's funny though, I didn't find out right away. I kind of forgot about it. I was like, well, I guess I didn't get it because I found out eight days after that I booked it. I think probably because they were, uh, the, you know, they're casting all over the place. There's a number of actors in LA and from all over going out for that role. So, um, you, you've been in two science fiction shows in, in both Battlestar Galactica and Dollhouse. Is there something about science fiction as a genre that appeals to you? Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge sci-fi fan. Always have been ever since I was a kid. You know, I'm, I'm particular in what I like. I think a lot of people are. I don't like everything. Some stuff is uh, a little too fantastical for me. I'm, uh, it's well known that like, uh, you know, uh, Blade Runner is my favorite film. I've watched it. I, I don't even know how many times. Probably about thirty times. I, I love that film. I have to watch it a couple times a year, <laughs> at least. Um, you know, I, I like to tell this story too. Yeah, I find it really incredible that Edward James almost made such an impression on me when I was a little kid, and I saw. Like, thank you. And I saw uh, Blade Runner, and uh, I was fascinated by him more than a lot of actors in that film. And he had such a small role, do you know what I mean? But he stood out. He was one of the most compelling characters in there. And at that time, even as a little kid, I was thinking, I want to do that. Like, I, I, I want to know more about this guy. He's such a good actor. And uh, how does he do that? And, 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 uh, and then, you know how many years later 22 years later or something they end up booking a series just with him at the, the, as the lead I mean from that point on though from you know seeing him in that first film I was always a fan of his work and they end up working with him was incredible but I've always loved sci-fi I read a lot of sci-fi uh, you know I've seen uh, certain writers who have always that I've read you know ever since I was younger my, my dad is a passionate reader too and he likes a lot of science fiction too so he's he's turned me on to a lot of writers I, I remember when he turned me on to uh, William Gibson I was 14, and uh, I've been a passionate fan of his ever since, although I haven't read his latest work. Uh, when you were on uh, Startup BSU, it was you and Grace Park most of the time. Was it a, a, a big transition when you had to act with, with the rest of the cast? Did that present different challenges? For sure, yeah. Just you know, just, just being a young actor, I was just, uh, you know, you have to understand, even, even in the cast read-through, like I said, I hadn't read the script yet. So cast read through. I see some other local Vancouver actors that I know, and they're like, oh, "Hey, what's on? You're on this." And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm on this," and you know, it's great. And, and then I see Edward James almost and Mary McDonald walk by, and I'm like, "Holy shit! Did you just see it?" I, I had no idea they were on our show. I just thought they were at the studio doing something else. And everyone's like, "Yeah, they're, they're the leads." And I'm like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> I started sweating and got really nervous right away. And the cast read through, I was looking down at the table and mumbling. I was so intimidated. It was you know, it was both of them. I'm a huge fan of both those actors. So, you know, when I first got to work with him, you, you've got a lot of nerves. Like, you know, Eddie's an intimidating guy when you first meet him. Ultimately, you get to know him. He's just an incredible man. He deserves, you know, 
I have so much respect for that man, but he, he's really kind and warm once you get to know him. Um, the beginning, I was very intimidated to work with Mary and Eddie, and I think most of us were just because of their their stature and, and uh, you know their, their their place in the business, their years of experience, the caliber of actor that they were. But it was never not a learning experience. I, I learned so much every time I ever worked with them. The first time I saw you that I really remembered you was that, that initial scene, Battlestar Galactica, where you, where you give up your seat to Guy's Baltar. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember listening to Ron Moore talk about that on his podcast, where he said that it, he was done with you at that point. And then when they did the premiere, every he, everybody that came out was saying, well, what happens to Eli? Yeah, yeah, there was a big fan response. I yeah, so. just just yeah. immediately from the yeah. first showing. Yeah, I, do you think you're like the luckiest actor? Definitely. Like, uh, you know, it's um, it's really uh, it's really flattering to 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 know that you know the audience out there responded in that way that they wanted. You know, but yeah, you know, I, I can only take so much of the credit. I mean, it was written. Really, quite well. It was, it was a great scene. It was an awesome opportunity. I think, um, you know, I think part of it was the connection I had with Grace Park. Instantly, we uh, we connected right away, just as friends, just as young actors. We made a connection and we, we bonded right away. And I think that showed in the uh, the performance and the connection that we had as characters in the show. Uh, it's really important. Oftentimes, you just don't have that kind of. From what I've observe being a fan of this art form also is like you know it's regardless of how good actors are sometimes they can't they just don't have chemistry you see it often you see oftentimes and then you'll see actors really trying to make that chemistry you know they're playing lovers or people who are very close and it just doesn't come across well uh, Grace and I had a we had a connection right away and we clicked we were like brother and sister we were like old old friends instantly and it was, it was uh, it's awesome I mean she's still a dear friend of mine and uh, you know, I think that's part of the reason that, that fans responded to to Hilo too. And um, but yeah, great, you know, greatest greatest opportunity in the world. And like I said, uh, I was just answering this question earlier earlier on. I um, <clears throat> I had no idea that I was going to be coming back. You know, I was done with it. And I was okay with that. I had a great experience shooting it. We shot it over months. I worked with incredible actors, and I had you know I had to play the hero role in some ways. And uh, I was done with it. I moved on. You know, I got the call like uh, six, seven months later. Maybe even longer. Maybe it was eight months. I don't know. But that they were going to go to first season. They had an opportunity for uh, you know storyline on the planet, you know, the sea storyline sort of, to visit Hilo running around on the planet trying to survive. And this was your own storyline. Mm-hmm. That must have been pretty cool. I was incredible. I remember uh, when Ron called. I had a, I had a particularly bad, bad week. Uh, my first pilot season in L.A a bunch of bad auditions in a row and I found out that the last series I was on the one that I went to right after I shot the miniseries of Battlestar Cold Squad a Canadian cop television series was cancelled so I was having like a really bad day I think uh, kind of question whether I wanted to do this anymore which you do sometimes you know, especially after you've had some bad auditions and then uh, I got the call from Ron Moore I got the call from my manager and said Ron Moore wants to talk to you and I'm like well give him my number and he called me up and he said yeah you know got this idea of the storyline now I'm like Ron where do I sign let's do this I'm excited uh, have, have you previously been a fan of Battlestar Galactica 
Yeah, I don't know. I was very, I was very, very young. You know, uh, I remember it though. I didn't have cable when I was a kid, so I remember watching it at friends' houses. But it was significant at the time. I remember how big it was at the time. You know, it's like it was a big deal. I remember having you know the uh, the uh, you know action figures and stuff from playing Battlestar Galactica and. Uh, you know, I, uh, no disrespect to the original series, uh, but, you know, I think... I'd like to think what people think about the show now. I mean, it was one season. We we were significant. Uh, you know, we shot that show for almost six years, if you think about it. 4.5 seasons, but with the miniseries and the year in between, and the writer's strike and everything, we were together six years doing that show. I'd like to think that when people think about Battlestar Galactica, they think about our, uh, our, our version. Now, um, there was a lot of new media... That was that surrounded the show. Ron did the the director's cut podcast that was meant to be played while you were watching the episode. Um, you guys did a bunch of webisodes during the writers' strike, and I understand that that uh, there were some there was some argument surrounding that about like the like the studio didn't want to pay you for the work on the the webisodes. Um, I I'm not really privy to a lot of that because uh, I I never did any of the webisodes. But uh, I know that some of my cast members did. And I, w- uh, I can't remember the situation with that, so I can't really speak on it. Okay, but um, do you participate in any new media, like Twitter or Facebook or anything like that? I, um, to be honest with you, I, I really should career-wise. I'm sure that uh, it would be a smart move to get on Twitter. I'm, uh, I find it hard to juggle everything, you know? I constantly get really frustrated with Facebook, even. I hate that I check it as much as I do and to be honest with you I haven't, I haven't used it much in the last month but I still check it because I have a lot of you know friends who email me there uh, I'm not good at promoting myself a lot I I, uh, I try to be present as much as I can in life and you know really focus on the things that I can I find that there's very little time in every day I need to work out I need to meditate I need to be present with my friends and family and not be incessantly checking my phone or twittering when I'm with them mm-hmm. it makes them feel less important and less loved because that's how I feel when somebody's doing that when I'm around those are things I'm trying to focus on more in life but I'm constantly being told I need to twitter I don't know I might get in trouble with some of the stuff I might say I can be really honest at times and <laughs> I might put my uh, my foot in my mouth but you know, I'll, I'll consider the whole twitter thing but you know other than that I, I'm not very good at uh, self-promotion I just find it hard to juggle email and text and all of that in life. There's too much of it, to be honest with you, in my opinion. You know, one of my friends calls the current generation the generation that never looks up. That's what I mean. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. I get it. You know, I'm, I'm, I can, I'm guilty of it myself when I'm on the computer. I'll be, you know, I'll be texting. Sometimes I've found myself, you know, comfortably watching. I'm a big, huge fight fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, fights on in the background. I'm on my computer. I've got my phone beside me, and you know, texts are coming in, or I'm having a, you know, a WhatsApp conversation at the same time. It's, you know, we're like this ADD generation, completely unfocused sometimes. But I, 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 I really think it's important, and I, I try and make a point of not doing that when I'm with loved ones or people I care about because uh, it doesn't do anything for relationships. It's making us more distant and. Uh, I mean, the irony of it is we're using technology to get closer to each other, and it's actually making us more distant and more lonely. If you really think about it. I, I think it's a, a, a double-edged sword. That it, it is. It, you know, it, it cuts both ways, and sometimes both ways at the same time. Yeah. But um, there's a lot of people here 
that I only see a couple of times a year, and we keep in touch all year round. And it, it just there's, there's this continuing conversation. Yeah. And you see someone, and you just throw your arm around them, and go head off you to the bar, them. and and yeah. it's like it's like you never left. Yeah, not to be negative about it. Like you said, it is a double-edged yeah. sword. You know, it's great to keep in contact with uh, old friends, people I grew up with, family and stuff. I, I, I can use Facebook for that and stuff. But it's just, uh, it's really just hard finding a fine line, though, with it. Yeah. yeah. It, it's it's managing that line, I think. That's yeah, the important is. thing. The balance of it is really difficult, I find. It, it, it seems like Battlestar Galactic was really an ensemble show. Absolutely. And, uh, you Huge know, cast. Yeah, and, and yet, you know, you got to do great things, but you know, you had to, you were part of a bigger group. Absolutely. Because when you got to Dollhouse, you were, it wasn't as quite as big a group, so yeah. you got to do more, you, you appeared more on this show. I, I did somewhat. I did somewhat. I mean, you think about it. I, the thing about Dollhouse, we had two seasons. If I, third season, maybe I didn't appear as regularly in, in Battlestar, but I was. My character and my role, Sharon and I's role, Athena, Athena and I's characters in our storyline was was quite an integral and important part of the storyline. And if I wasn't shown as much, I was shown in a more significant way. More often, we'd have a whole episode or what have you. I think in a larger picture, I was featured as much in the last couple of years. But Dollhouse, yeah, it was like I, the only problem with Dollhouse, not to say anything negative about it, is that it was struggling from the minute we started. Which is really unfortunate because I think that show had a lot of potential. Joss Whedon's a brilliant man, very, very talented, <clears throat> but it just it started off on the wrong foot. It was uh, there was too many people with too many different ideas trying to make this one thing happen. Did you have the same experience when you got to Dollhouse? Here was Joss Whedon, you know, a name in science fiction. Did you have and, and uh, the other characters? Did, did you have some of the same feelings when you came across the cast as you did in Battlestar? Well, there was a lot of young actors on the show uh, who maybe didn't have as much experience as, as I did, but I, I realized right away how talented they were. You know, some really, really talented actors. Uh, you know, Ed Bear, Joe Kai is a really talented actor. He's a, I think he's going to have an incredible career. Um, you know, teaching herself, beautiful, beautiful young woman. She's just a an angel she's going to have a great career too uh, Miracle I mean they're all and then you know like you look at some of our leads just really incredible actors like Harry Lennox Olivia uh, I, I worked for a number of years and I was coming off of an incredible series so I was I was quite confident in my ability uh, to do my thing with my character and just eager I was just excited it wasn't the nerves that I had with Battlestar because I was quite a young actor when we did that show so early in my career but um <clears throat> I, you know, I will say this: it's 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 somewhat hard to work in the environment. I don't have the experience yet, and I think hopefully, I, you know, maybe you get this after years of experience. But to work in an environment where the, a show was so hyped, which Dollhouse was, because it's the first thing that Joss had done in a number of years, and to have so much negative press surrounding it. I mean, it's I kind of hate that about uh, you know the business somewhat. It's like. It's almost like a hater culture. It's like people want you to fall, you know? It's like there was there was so much hype about it, a lot of excitement, but at the same time, there was almost more negative press that, you know, this is going to happen. And from the minute we started, there was the rumors that we're going to be canceled, there's problems on the show, which unfortunately there was in terms of writing. You know, I think, like I said, I think Joss had a vision and uh, he wasn't able to follow through with that vision. And unfortunately, because of that, the show got steered in different directions and it, it didn't reach its full potential, but it... it it did a lot of great things, and there were some incredible episodes. And I'm 
so happy to have uh, been part of it. I understand you're doing voice work in Mortal Kombat. Voice? No. No, you're, oh, you're, you're in the live action film. Mm-hmm. So, what, it's, a web, it's a web movie. Right. Um, but has anybody seen the trailer here? Did you guys check out that seven-minute trailer? Yeah. It's incredible. It's awesome. It's so good. Kevin Tatron is Marissa Tatron. Okay, Marissa Tatron. Do you familiar with her? She, she was one of the key writers mm-hmm. on uh, on Dollhouse. Mm-hmm. She's married to uh, 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 Jedi, who's Joss's younger brother. Mm-hmm. They're good friends of mine. They're 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 awesome. Um, uh, very talented musicians, writers, the whole deal. So Kevin is Marissa's little brother. He is I don't know. Kevin's like a young man. He directed Fame. He had this idea. He put the, he did the trailer for you know very limited budget. This reimagined Mortal Kombat uh, trailer, and uh, because of it, it I, I don't know. Don't quote me on this, but I think it had 20 million hits. So he's decided to do the web movie. Same thing, limited budget again, but incredible. Shooting like a madman in Vancouver right now. I got cast as uh, one of the characters, Striker, and uh, I was just in Vancouver last week doing that. I came back on Monday. Actually, came back to LA on Monday. Even with the science fiction thing, I always find interesting. You're sort of drawn to these scientific science fiction. I, you know, it, it, yeah, I am. I mean, like I said, I'm a fan, but it, you know, it, I, it comes to me. I don't go and get the case, You know. Now you're a big science fiction fan. Yep. Do you uh, do you read science fiction as well? Yep. What what what's some of your favorite science fiction books? Um, probably uh, Philip K. Dick's uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric. She was one of my favorites. A young age, of course, because of the film I saw first, and then once I got, it took me, you know, years later. I was a young, I was a little boy when I saw, you know, uh, Blade Runner. Yeah. But when I finally got to read the book, I was really excited about that. It's a very different style. William Gibson is definitely my favorite sci-fi writer, though. Uh, um, I just, I, I love his, love his stuff. Uh, one of his last books, Spook Country, is. Uh, a large part of it's set in Vancouver, where he he's lived for years. He gets a lot of his inspiration. He writes from there. I see him all the time. I turn into a fan girl. The two times I've met him, I I stumbled over my words and had absolutely nothing to say. And I've read his books, and I could sit there and just you know quote things. And, and, and it's amazing watching a writer develop as a writer, his style, the way he writes, and just to see him grow as an artist. You know, but any time I've ever seen him, I'd be like, ah, oh, Mr. Gibson, a big fan of your books. It's really nice to meet you. And then walked away going, oh, you idiot. <laughs> idiot. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I love, love William Gibson. Yeah. Now, um, what, we were having this discussion last night about uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Yep. And um, the, the book is so hugely different from the movie that was based on it, Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. And I think you really get to see there the difference... In, in the art of writing and the art of filmmaking and yeah. both being you know part of storytelling mm-hmm. um, if there was one specific you know book that was made into a movie that that you would like to be in what would it be hey if I had the opportunity to be an enemy of Harrison Ford's role roles when it, you know if there was a possibility that they, there was a remake or something, I would jump at the chance. You know, I don't think Blade Runner should ever be remade, but I mean, uh, incredible film. Yeah, even though it was so different from the book, I'm still such a huge fan of it. Yeah, I th- I, and I think both the book and the movie were excellent, excellent but they were yeah. completely different. Yeah, although I think you know the final cut, the final final cut really was the best. Yeah, because that's what he wanted to do with it originally. So yeah, yeah. This is Mark Wade. 
Hi, this is Amanda Tapping. Hello, I'm Steve Pugh. And you can catch them all right here on SFP Now. Join us at sfp-now.com. Welcome back to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. We have got to wrap up the show tonight, Miles. It's time to close the diner. It is. It's time to go. Before we close it, though, we do have our Sci-Fi 5 and 5, and I am bringing the Sci-Fi 5 and 5 tonight, I believe. And uh, let me go ahead and uh, share what it is. Um, as you know, we've talked about patio books, mm-hmm. and we've many times brought interviews with patio book authors. Mm-hmm. And there are some on here that we have not interviewed, but I'm sharing my top five. Cool. Now, these are not in any particular order because they're all fairly well done. Right. They really are. Coming in at number one, and again, this is not in order. This is just a numbering system for it, is Enemy Lines by John Nero. Mm-hmm. Uh, continue to love it. Uh, and that's it. apparently the story's done. I keep you saying he was writing again today. They said, "Oh, you're going to kill off another major character because he has this habit of doing this, killing off major characters." I like, but that's fine. The Heaven Field by e- I. G. Hume, phenomenal episode this past week that dropped. Oh yeah, uh, can't tell you about it. You have hmm. to listen. I don't want to ruin it for you, but we encountered there. There's more to the war. There's more to the war. That's all I'm going to say. Leviathan Chronicles, we've obviously had Christoph on uh, one or so twice. And, twice, yeah. Um, what, a, what a great, what a great, what a great podcast. I keep waiting for the next episode to drop. We've only had two special edition episodes. Yeah, we're, I'm wait, yeah, I'm waiting for uh, uh, It must be either it must run into trouble or maybe it's just timing or things aren't coming together quite as fast mm. as he hoped. But uh, whatever, Christoph, make sure you check out Leviathan Chronicles if you haven't. Children of the Gods. Mm-hmm. This was that Battlestar Galactica kind of one that you got into. And right. We're still waiting for that to continue. The story's not finished. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Star Wars in the Shadows is one of the only Star Wars podcasts that I listened to that was a patio book as mm-hmm. well. But it was very well done. And all these, I highly recommend any of these patio books. If you haven't listened to them, check them out. Um, the ones that are consistently being updated right now, and the reason probably they're my one and two, is Enemy Lines in Heaven Field. They're still uh, they're still putting out new episodes. Cool. Heavenfield took a break, and now they're pumping out new episodes again. So very well, very worth checking out. I believe that's about it, Miles. All right. Well, next time, good night and good luck. We'll see ya.
You can find more great podcasts at lifestylepodnetwork.com.au.